Well, good morning and welcome. You know, one of these days I'll do an intro video with English, but uh, I, apparently I'm not quite there yet. Just in case you're wondering, that's uh, Psalm 51, Son in Aramaic. Um, one of the things I've been doing over the last year is I've been uh, kind of exploring worship with um, like in, in Orthodox churches, or, or and uh, there's a, a gentleman called, uh, and I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to say this word properly, the Archimedite. Uh, or, uh, anyways, that's a term they use uh, in, in the Orthodox Church, and he's a singer, and he does a lot of the uh, psalms in Aramaic. Gorgeous. I have no idea what he's saying, but it's just it's just stunning. So uh, in case you're wondering, and then if you want the YouTube link, I'll send you all his, his you know, I don't think he has a Spotify playlist, but I, I, I get the videos off of YouTube, but it's just phenomenal. Well, this morning, as we've mentioned, we are starting off our Easter series. Uh, and uh, this Easter series, okay, so every Easter, I say the same thing, and I say something like this, that Easter and Christmas are difficult for pastors. Right? Because how do you come to this topic in a way that's uh, hopefully original and, and, and hopefully teaches something that perhaps we may not have known? I, I have to say that over the last few years, I've been kind of fortunate to kind of maybe overturn some pebbles on the, on the beach of Scripture, of, of learning some new things. Well, this series is, is something for me, a bit of an answer to a question. And the question is this idea of, this, uh, of, of Jesus as king. You know, what's interesting, over the last few uh, weeks as I've been studying this topic, um, it's, it's been interesting to me as I've been listening to our worship, this idea of Jesus as king has popped up all over the place. But I confess to you, as, as a pastor and as a Christ follower, it didn't mean that much to me, right? Because a king isn't an idea that we can really wrap our minds around, because it's not something that we as Westerners uh, even um, can kind of relate to. I remember listening to a, a podcast from this uh, pastor in England, and they were talking about the royal family and, and this kind of context, and he even said that, you know, it's more of a quaint idea as opposed to something that has, you know, uh, power or majesty to it. So this Easter series is going to be, it's, it's called King of Kings, because as I've discovered, this idea of king is actually central to the Gospels, but also to the Easter story, and no spoiler alerts, we'll get to that. Uh, so let's just jump in here and talk a little bit about this. Um, a gentleman by the name of C.T. Studd had this great article about this, and he says this, Generally speaking, Americans don't like kings, and we, of course we can insert Canadians as well. We had a king once, and we really didn't care for it. When many of us hear the word king, one or two images typically come to mind. The first is that of a distant tyrant across the ocean who mistreats the people and taxes their tea. Uh, the second image is that of a now meaningless figurehead, a historical office held from the past that no longer wields any real power. And I think he's absolutely correct, right? When we think of this idea of king, it doesn't really mean anything, right? And again, there are different images to that. But what we have to realize is this idea of king still actually has power in fiction. In, in, in kind of our literature, right? So, you know, we go back to the Lion King, and no spoiler alerts here, one of them dies. Um, but what's interesting is, is that what, 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 what Disney actually captures, what the writers actually capture, is, is what, the, uh, what, the, what the king's domain looks like with the righteous king, but what the, ki what the land looks like with the unrighteous king. And again, for those of you who read fiction at all, or even historical fiction, you know that the writers tend to make this connection between the king and the land. And, and again, this, this kind of comes into two of the most, two of the greatest, I say, uh, fictional novels of all time, right? So we have, you know, the, you know, the Narnia Chronicles, right? Aslan, and by the way, we're going to come back to this one in, 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 a, in, in the future, not today. But Aslan is the true king of Narnia. 
right? But again, we go back to the Lord of the Rings. And again, when, you know, but people always forget, and I remember having this conversation with this atheist about Lord of the Rings, and they loved Lord of the Rings. And I said, you know, you should be careful about loving Lord of the Rings. I'm like, why? I said, well, it's full of spiritual overtime. I'm like, ah, you Christians, you see that everywhere. I'm like, oh, by the way, let's look at J.R. Tolkien's life. And he was a devout Christian, you know, friends with C.S. Lewis. And I said, oh, by the way, why do you think C.S. Um, uh, Tolkien, sorry, calls it Middle Earth? Because when he's trying to infer heaven and hell, the middle is a plane that we humans exist upon. It's like, oh, I don't And he's like, I don't know if I like it anymore. I'm like, ah, it's your problem. But I'm just saying you just need to understand the metaphor. So what we need to understand is even though we don't really look at this idea of king in a way of like, oh, that means something to me today, in our fiction, in our literature, it's, it's, it's this vivid picture. Just so you know, growing up for me, the, the idea of king that was so vivid in my mind was the Arthurian legend, King Arthur. I read everything about King Arthur. By the way, if you're looking for a great series that looks like King Arthur in a more, a more realistic, Jack White's um, Arthur, uh, The Arthurian Chronicle thing is like nine novels. The best. One I, I try to read every year, all, all nine books. But it's, it, it, in my opinion, the best treatment of King Arthur as a realistic concept as opposed to what other ones there. But I love the idea of King Arthur, right? The Knights of the Round Table. Again, it's just, for me as a child, it was so, it was so vivid. And, of course, you know, Aslan as well, too. And, of course, you know, Strider or Aragorn, you know, the king that would return. These are powerful images. And, and you know what, what's interesting is that they resonate with us, right? Even as I'm saying with this, they resonate resonate with us. But the problem with the idea of kings today is actually kind of a different kind of a concept and one we're going to unpack this morning. And it really comes down to this idea of power, right? So Steve Taylor wrote this great article about called The Problem of Power. And he says this, throughout most of recorded history, one of human race's biggest problems has been with that people who rise into positions of power tend to be precisely the kind of people who should not be entrusted with power. Desire for power correlates with negative personality traits such as selfishness, greed, and lack of empathy. So the people who have the strongest desire for power tend to be the most ruthless and least compassionate individuals. And once they possess power, they usually devote themselves to entrenching, increasing, and protecting their power with scant regard for the welfare of others. And I think this is something that we have been looking at over the last, I'd say, at least five years in our culture. Is, is that, you know, who has power? Who wields it? And, and should they? And I think this is a great question that, uh, that we need to ask. He goes on to say this. A large part of the problem is the kind of people who should take on positions of power because they are em empathic, fair-minded, and responsible and wise, and naturally disinclined to gain power. Empathic individuals like to remain on the ground, interacting with others, rather than elevating ourselves. They don't desire control or authority, but connection. So this leaves the positions free for people who do crave control and authority. And I say to that, absolutely, right? So when we look at the world today, we look at politics, we look at corporate structures, the people who tend to ascend, people who seem to move up, may not be the people that we want to actually uh, achieve those things. He says this, and I have one of my own quotes in there as well too. He says this, often those who attain power are either psychopaths or narcissists. You know, I could, I could share with you the results of corporate CEOs that m most of the corporate CEOs in Western countries or just in companies in general display narcissistic or psych uh, psychopathic tendencies or sociopathic tendencies. Right? You have to remember, when you rise in levels of power, you have to step on people. You have to look at your own ambitions as being greater than others. And only people who have no empathy or no you know, uh, uh, qualifications towards that 
Well, they're the ones who actually rise in power. And I've said this before, and this is why I kind of make sure that, you know, this is my statement, not uh, poor Steve Taylor's. But it says this, power does not a crap. And power is crap. No, um, <laughs> power does not corrupt. It attracts the corruptible. You've heard the phrase before, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't think that's actually true. Because I can think of, in my, own, uh, in my own life, individuals who I think should be in power. Whether in pastors or individuals I've met. Like, I, 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 was, I, I, I encounter these people. I'm like, why aren't you calling the shots? Or, or why aren't you cleaning up the government? Or why and they're like, oh, I don't think so. I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm like, that's why I want you to do it. Because you want nothing to do with it. Right? It's almost like saying people who, who enter into political office or, 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 or positions of power, you're like, I mistrust you. Because why would you want to be in this anyways? Because you're not going to do anything. And, and, and again, our, our political structure is based upon re-election. It's not actually based upon doing any kind of good because all you're thinking about is whenever you get elected, you know, whether it's two or four years later, making sure you stay there. So it's all about you know, funding for your campaigns and all that. And again, this is a whole different conversation. But really when we come to this idea of kings, it really comes down to this idea of power. And I think our culture today is having these really great conversations. But... There's actually another part of this, and last week, if you joined us for our kind of our Vision Sunday for UCC, we talked a little bit about our values, right? We talked a little bit about who we are and where we came from, and what I didn't tell you, what I didn't say is actually a lot of how you, we, uh, Uptown Community Church operates, is in response to this idea of power, but not just power within culture, because we have no political power, but power within the church. Um, Andy Crouch for Christianity Today wrote this great article, and I put the date on this because it's important to see when he wrote this. 2013. Look what he says. Uh, he says, I believe we need a new conversation about power in the church. And again, 2013, right? This is important because of all the stuff that's been happening over the last several years. I say a new conversation because it will be genuinely a new topic for many pastors and lay people. The three perennial areas of ethics for Christians, Richard Foster reminded us a generation ago, are money, sex, and power. There are volumes of Christian writing on sexuality, and annual stewardship campaigns provide a natural time for sermons and teaching on stewardship of money. By contrast, there are surprisingly few times when pastors and people directly address power. And this is especially true in churches that participate in the culture of middle and upper uh, middle class America, where we can easily, see, where we can easily take power for granted. And I think this is almost a prophetic article. I don't think Andy would ever think that of himself when he wrote it. But as we, as we look around the world today, the Christian world, Christian leaderships, we see abuses of our power. Right? There's a documentary on, 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 a, on, on an Australian megachurch. Uh, I, I say that gently, but everyone knows what I'm talking about, right? Um, right? You know, there's the, the podcast I mentioned to you, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, you know, again, just all over the place, we see... Christian leaders in powerful positions behaving in ways where we're like, how is it possible that these individuals could get away with this? Well, really what we haven't really talked about is how does Christian, how does Christianity handle power? And we have done a, a, a poor job of addressing this. Right? I remember going to, not going, being on staff at a church, and I remember the first day that uh, I was taken on a tour, I was taken back behind the stage there. There's a room offside. They call it the green room. I thought, wait, what? A church has a green room. What's a, like, I knew what a green room was in the sense of like, you know, like in, in like, uh, you know, on TV or whatever, you know. But I'm like, what, what is a church in a green room? Oh, this is where, you know, the people can come and have their team. We have a volunteer team that's their, that's their job of, of maintaining the green room. I'm like, 
what the crap? Like what? Like what? Like what? Like this is what we need, right? This is and again, not saying it's not a place where you know you need to relax and calm down. Because just to be clear, and, and not that this is a, I, I I never use this. I always I always felt guilty even thinking about it. But it's like oh yeah, the best water and you know, the snacks back there. I'm like, who am I that needs that kind of stuff, right? I you know like I I. Anyways, that's a whole different conversation. But the point simply was, is that the church has never really had a great conversation about how do leaders really deal with power. And so we talk about this idea of a king. What we're really asking ourselves is who deserves to wear the crown? Whether you look good at it or not, it's irrelevant, right? And it could be a tear. It could be, well, I don't know. I don't know if a tear is like a female crown. That's, that's a terrible thing to say, I know. But uh, you get the idea, right? It's like, who deserves power? And, and part of the conversation really d- depends on this. Now, what's interesting about this idea of kings is, and anthropologists have really n- noted this, is that almost every ancient civilization had a king. This concept developed independent of each nation. Now, whenever anthropologists see an idea, that uh, develops, you know, separate from one another, they always kind of go, huh, why is that? Right? So, for example, when we look at, uh, we, we went through the book of Exodus, we saw the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. What anthropologists have not yet been able to kind of figure out is why do cultures seem to have the same moral code? Because evolutionary, if, if that is the actual the case, this doesn't, this doesn't develop on its own. Right? Because you could have one culture that says, no, no, this is, this is what we think is right and wrong. And another culture, continents away, thousands of years separated, would say, no, no, it's okay. We like that. Right? But we haven't. What we find is that ancient cultures seem to have the same kind of morality. And again, anthropologists haven't been able to answer that. We Christians, I think, have this idea of why it's true, the image of God and all that. But anthropologists haven't been able to figure that out. Well, this idea of kings also kind of falls into that category as well. This idea of kings, and, and again, it doesn't matter It's just if it's tribal or if it's an empire. Kings have always been a part of our history, and no one has been able to kind of figure out why that is. Um, the Easter story, the Gospels, go out of their way to emphasize Jesus' kingship. In order to understand why, you must first understand the background. So this morning, I want to talk to you about where this idea of kings have come from. And we're going to be spending time in the Old Testament. Because unless you understand this, you're not going to understand, first of all, the Gospels. And, and, and I don't want to mean like, oh, I'm, I'm reading the Gospels all wrong. But when I start sh- when next week, when I show you how often the Gospels emphasize King Jesus, but then why do they emphasize that? And then how does this find its fulfillment in the Easter story. But, and again, I don't want to give too many spoilers because I'm kind of excited because I, I, again, whenever I research something, I'm always excited that I learn something too. Right? I, I know you think that I, as a pastor, know everything, which, again, I'm so p- thankful that you think that and no one thinks that I know. But um, I'm always learning as well too. And again, Jesus as king is a concept I never quite understood. We sing it, and this morning, um, Kendra led us uh, uh, through worship songs. And again, if you noticed, crown and king and throne these are all terms of royalty and when we look at the gospels next week and we look at the on good friday when we look at this idea of of the crucifixion jesus's kingship comes front and center and the gospel writers do this intentionally because they're trying to convey something to us which i think we as westerners have kind of totally missed out so let's dive in and let me let me start ask off by asking a question who deserves power it's a great question, right? And, and I, I would say this, that the Bible can almost be simplified down to say that it deals with power and power imbalances. Who deserves it? How should it be wielded? And what is our response? 
And, and when I use the word power imbalances, people can say to yourself, well, that seems like an abstract concept. But the reality is it's not. Because every one of us has dealt with power imbalances from our bosses, teachers, friends, etc. We have all thought about who deserves to be the one to wield it. You ever had a bad boss? And the answer is, yeah. You ever had a crappy teacher? Yeah. Right? Like, I... How do I say this in a way that's not too mean? Um, and by the way, when that filter kicks in, you know it's bad, right? But as a pastor, I've been in ministry now for, uh, man, I'm old. Uh, like over, like I'd say like 27 years approximately. And in those 27 years, I can honestly say that it's only been a couple of people that I work for, whether senior pastor or executive pastor, that I thought really had integrity. The first individual that I, that I had to work under I, I would say this individual was, was a sociopath, a senior pastor of a church, but was absolutely a sociopath. Uh, and just in, in regards to how their behavior and how they treated staff and people, like they thought that blackmailing board members was a way to kind of get their agenda. It's just, again, the stuff I could tell you would just curl your toes. And I know people have similar stories. And I get that, right? But what's interesting is that we've all experienced those power imbalances. You've worked with a boss, right? You try to get a day off or you, you know, the boss may have a favorite and all that. You're like, that's not fair, right? And we've all used that phrase, that's not fair. But what we are implying, and again, C.S. Lewis talks about this in uh, Mere Christianity, but whenever we use a phrase, that's not fair, what we, it, the implication is that there's something that must be fair, right? And that's true. The Bible also asks this question, but shows us the dark side of this equation. Time and time again, humans show that they are unworthy of this position. The story begins, of course, with the first king of Israel. And that's kind of where we have to go, because whatever is going to happen with Jesus, remember, God is like, the Gospels and Christ doesn't, doesn't just pop up. Everything has been laid out. The story has been set for us. And again, as I've said before at Uptown Community Church, we try to give you the entire context. Right? And to understand Jesus and his kingship, you have to first understand what God intended and how humanity just screws it up completely. Um, uh, Rabbi Avi Weiss says this about uh, the kings. He says this, Whether appointing a king is legally obligatory or not, or, or not is a subject of great controversy. Again, in Judaism, of course, right? But whether it is, uh, it is or is not, the Torah recognizes that it is human nature that people will ask for leadership in the form of a king. When they do, the Torah builds limitations into the kingship so that the king will never abuse his power. Of paramount importance is that both king, both the king and his people realize that while he is a leader, he's still subject to God. And in the end, it is the Lord who is the king of kings. Um, by the way, you know, subtle plug to my sermon series, but you get the idea, right? When you look to Judaism, when you look at the ancient Hebrews, this concept of king is, is there, right? As a matter of fact, if you've ever looked in your Bible, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, it's the chronicle of the kings or kings, right? So Israel is going to wrestle with this idea of power. And what we're going to see in a moment is it just gets messed up, right? It just gets messed up. So if you have your Bibles or your digital devices, uh, you can turn to 1 Samuel because this is where the idea of kings first pops up. So 1 Samuel chapter 8 verses 1 to 3 is where we get this idea of king first coming to fruition for the Israelites. So it's this, as Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. By the way, this is the first uh, rule that nepotism is never a good idea. In ministry or in corporations, it never seems to work out, right? Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. So in the Bible, again, there's another book called Judges. 
And the judges were the precursor to the kings, right? So the judges ruled Israel as the kings would ahead of them, but the judges didn't have absolute power. By the way, it's interesting to note that one of the judges was a woman. That's a whole different conversation. But I think it's important that Deborah was a, a judge of Israel, that she sent men to war, and she made decisions for the nation of Israel. So I, I kind of like that. It fits into the values of UCC as well, too, funnily enough. Uh, it's always funny when values kind of align with biblical, but that's a whole different conversation. So the judges were the precursor to the kings, right? And so in 1 Samuel, uh, we see that Samuel's sons, he appoints them as judges, and they are as corrupt as possible, right? So again, who should have power? Well, people who are not corrupt or greedy should not have power. So let's take a look at the rest of the uh, chapter. Verse 4 and 5 says this. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all other nations have. So uh, just a quick note. Israel at this point in time is what we would call a theocracy. Now, in political terms, uh, some countries today would claim to be a theocracy. I would say uh, Muslim countries where uh, uh, Sharia law is in place, these would be theocracies because it's a religious way of governing. Well, Israel was a theocracy before it was a monarchy, right? And so this is the transition from theocracy to mo monarchy, right? And so a theocracy, obviously theo, God. It's, it's, it's God ruled, right? So we go, okay, so what Israel is saying is, hey, every nation around us has a king. We want a king, right? And again, it's kind of Samuel's fault, because had he been a better father, a better leader of Israel, he would have seen how corrupt his sons were, right? Like, if his son is driving around in a Mercedes or like a two-humped camel or whatever the sign of power was, his dad would go, wait a minute, I know the allowance you get. Where are you getting the money for this, right? You would, you would kind of know that your sons are corrupt, right? This is, uh, is kind of not news to Samuel. So this is actually on Samuel that this, that this has come. So the people go, you know what, we want to be like everybody else. So now take a look at verse 6 to 9. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Now, what I think is kind of funny here, just, just a quick note, is God doesn't say to Samuel, this is your fault, buddy. You know, God is merciful. I like that, right? And look what God says. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you, right? Again, theocracy, monarchy. They don't want me to be their king any longer. This is important. So how does God identify himself? He is their king. A theocratic king, but king. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. Now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So in the next verses, Samuel says, okay, you can have a king, but just beware, this is what's going to happen, right? So verses 10 and 11. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who are asking for a king. This is how a king will reign. Right, in the next few verses, he kind of, I'm just highlighting a couple of things. First thing is, the king will draft your sons. In other words, if the king goes to war, he is allowed to take your sons, and he's allowed to make them into soldiers who will fight and die for him. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. Some will be his servants. The king will take your daughters from you, right? Again, as servants or as wives. And again, king has total control. This is, this is allowed. He will take the best of your field, so he will financially, he will, t he will, he will take something from you, and of, of course, he will take a tenth. So remember, right now, you have God as, as a theocracy, but then when a king comes along, he's going to ask a lot more from you. So make sure you understand this, right? Now look at verse 18. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. 
right? It's, 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 it's kind of interesting that, like, God's saying, are you sure you want this? Because this is what's going to happen, right? This is what's going to happen. And, and God says, if you ask for this, if you go down this path, well, this, this is what's going to happen. And of course, look at their response, right? But the people refused to listen to Samuel. Big shock there, Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like other nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. Okay, so this is the first time this concept of monarchy. Now, just take a look at the first two verses of chapter 9 because this is going to set for us the tone. And this is how we know that Israel has done messed up. Okay, is this is it right here. And, and again, you may not, I'm, I'm going to unpack this for you, but you need to understand this, right? There was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, uh, son of Becherath, son of Ephiah of the tribe of Benjamin. His son, Saul, was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. This is, this is the individual that's going to be the first king of Israel. And this should be the first indicator that they have made a really bad choice. I'll explain it to you in a second. First of all, look how the writer describes the individual. So Saul, who's going to become king, he, he's spoiled. Right? He, he's absolutely spoiled. He comes from affluence. Right? Which is, is the first problem because affluent people tend not to think about the justice of the common people. The second thing is he's from the tribe of Benjamin. I'll explain to you in a second why that's a problem. But the third thing as well, too, is that he's really good looking and tall. You know, this should be a warning for us today, maybe especially as Canadians. Stop voting in the good looking guy. All right? Just, just maybe, maybe looks aren't everything. Maybe look at some degrees or, or anyways, that's a whole different conversation. You know, by the way, we're not political. Vote for whoever you want to. Don't care. Uh, but again, just a little bit of warning from the Bible that I think may be relevant today. But there you go. Now, let's go back to the book of Genesis, because just so you know, the people ask for a king, and God is angry, but you have to realize as well, is that this idea of king was actually God's idea. Take a look at Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. Now, this is the last chapter for the, before the book of Exodus, right? And remember, the book of Exodus is of Jacob and his 12 sons, the 12 tribes, right, being imprisoned, enslaved by Egypt. And the last chapter, this is prophecy that Judah, t- uh, sorry, Jacob tells to the sons. And look what it says. Then Jacob called all together all his sons and said, gather around me and I will tell you what will happen to each of you in the days to come. All right, so this is, this is a very Jewish way of saying, God has given me a vision for the future. Now look at verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Just a quick note. In the nation of Israel, they knew that the, the king should only come from the tribe of Judah. So when the writer goes out of his way to say that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, he's trying to say, and again, us, us Gentiles may, can, can miss this, but again, at UCC, we try to understand the Jewish context of the Bible so that we don't miss these warning signs. And the first warning sign is, he's from Benjamin, right? But Jacob says to his son, the scepter, right? Again, the scepter is a royal staff, should only come from Judah. Um, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming, now watch this, of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So not only does, Ju- uh, does Jacob say to his sons, the king should only come from Judah, but he's prophesying of a king who will come, right, that all the nations will honor. And just to be clear, there was never a king of Israel that all the nations honored. The closest they had was, was David and Solomon, 
But these two kings still only had a couple of nations. But look at the plurality of what he's saying, nations. So Jacob is saying to his sons, there is going to be one who will come that all nations of the globe will, will recognize as royalty. Which is, again, a beautiful picture. But again, let's not, let's not fast forward to Jesus just yet. Let's make sure we kind of absorb this for what they're saying. So the people of Israel know what God expects. He, they know exactly what he wants. And so when they choose a king from Israel, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, they know that they've actually stepped out of what God's plan is. And so what can be said, and again, rabbinic commentators all pretty much agree on the same thing. It wasn't that they were never meant to have a king. But it was meant to be God who told them when it was time to have a king. And the reason why they had Saul as a king is because they preempted God's plan. And again, I think that's kind of interesting right there. Now, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 17, because this is where the Bible lays out power. Right? Remember I asked you the question, who deserves power? But it's not so much who deserves power, but how does power get wielded? Right? So Deuteronomy chapter 7 is very fascinating because it kind of tells us a little about what, uh, what a king is supposed to be like. Right? Again, remember, Deuteronomy is kind of prophetic before, you know, uh, for Samuel, it tells us about the power of a king. You're about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like other nations around us. Uh, you know, it's like God doesn't know what's going to happen, right? If this happens, be sure to select a king that, that's the, um, select as king, the man the Lord your God chooses. Right? What was their fault? They chose the man. And who do you choose to be king? The tallest. This is, this is the whole indicator of, you know, anybody above six feet, forget it. You're not in leadership anymore because, you know, you're just, you're just too tall. Which I can, I, I fully endorse, right? Maybe we need to have a, a political party of short people, right? Maybe that's the political party we need to have. And I am not the leader, but I'm definitely going to endorse that party, right? But, you know, it's, it's, it's a person that God chooses, right? So we go, okay. Now, look, at, look, look what God says. And this is the limitations of power. The king must not build up a large stable of horses. Just so you know, what that means to the ancient world is, is horses were a, uh, were a sign of wealth. Think of this as, as, as cars, right? That a king should only drive a Toyota, never a Mercedes. If you attend a church and your pastor drives a BMW Mercedes, I would say to you that's a bad church. Ah, I'm just going to throw that out there. I know, you're like, well, well. Forget it, okay? Pastors, we have a different rule, a different way of looking at the world. And this is kind of God's way of saying, let's limit this part of it, right? Second thing, the king must not take many wives for himself. In the ancient world, having many wives was, was common amongst pagan kings. Just to be clear, the Jewish kings were never allowed to do this. As a matter of fact, the law sets out that a, uh, the king should only have one wife. So whenever you see kings having multiple wives, and this includes David, it's not what God intended. Okay, so this idea of polygamy was not God's intention. And kings were, were subject to this as well, too. They didn't obey it because they're kings. They could do whatever they want, but it wasn't God's intent. And the third thing is, and he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. Now, that's interesting as well, right? God's saying to a king, you can be a king, but understand something. I don't want you to be a king of wealth. Because what does God understand that perhaps we Westerners forget? Wealth has a way of corrupting us. Wealth has a way of, 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 of changing the goalposts in regards to what a righteous king looks like. So what we realize from this is the biblical king would and should look different than other kings. So even though Israel is asking for a king like other kings, God is saying the king that represents my people is going to come from my values, not from yours. Right? There were limits to his authority and power. And when we talk about this idea of power, the real question we're asking about is what limits the power of, of, of a person that is a king? And again, 
we, the idea of king doesn't really make a, a representation for us. But in politics, that's a great question. Right? What are the checks and balances of power? And I think this is a conversation that we really need to have today in the political realm. And again, especially so in the church realm. Right? Our leaders in churches, what, what limits their power? Right? What, what limits how they are? And again, think of what God says to them. Right? Like they can't be wealthy. They can't have a lot of horses. And they certainly shouldn't have more than one wife or whatever else. Right? Um, again, you know, subtext there. Right? So it's like God is saying, you know what? We need to make sure that whoever represents me, who, who wields the power that I give them, they should look a little different than everybody else. Now, look at verses 18 to 20 of Deuteronomy. Look what, look what God says. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn for, to fear the Lord, his God, by obeying all the terms of the instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. So, this is interesting. Even though Israel's asking for a king, God knew that they were going to do this. So in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, listen, when the king comes, the king needs to understand that the king is subject to God. Right? Now, in the Middle Ages, whether it's the popes and the Catholic Church, they get this completely wrong. Right? They get this completely wrong. Right? Because the popes in the Middle Ages were God's voice to, you know, the Roman Empire or, or, or the nations. But the problem is there was no limitations to the Pope's power. And then we see a ton of abuses uh, of the Pope's power, right? So what we see here is what God is saying to the nation of Israel is that, yes, you can have a king, but you need to understand. You need to be very clear about this. That the king should know that there are limitations of his power, and those limitations come from the law. Now, now just look at this for a moment, right? It's, 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 it's not as if God says to the, the king, okay, I'm, have you read, you know, the law? The king would say, yes, no, no, I want you to copy it out, right? Because, you know, just so you know, it's, it's, it's a, if you have a hard time studying, what I used to do when, um, when I was in school, I used to recopy my notes out because just that, that action helped me to remember them. Um, in, uh, in a course in, in, in uh, Bible college, we had a course called Hebrew History. And one of the questions of Hebrew History is we had to know the king's list. And, by, and the king's list is we had to know all the kings of Israel in the proper order, and we had to know which ones were the righteous ones. There were only eight of them. So the, the, the first question on the exam was going to be, write out the king's list, starting from the first king all the way to the last king. And so that was the thing. So how did I do it? Well, I went to a classroom, got the chalkboard, and I just wrote it out time and time again to the point where it just became memory. By the way, I aced that part of the exam, which is fantastic, right? But it, by the way, don't ask me now again how it goes. I can't remember, right? But the simple point is, what, the, what God wants the king to know is write out the law. I don't want you to just say you know it. I don't want you to just say, yeah, yeah, I've read it. I want you to copy it out so you know, so I know that you know. But look at this as well, too. He has to do this in the presence of the Levitical priests. And what's interesting about this is the king is being given a not-so-subtle um, point of reference. He's saying to the king, by the way, the Levites who are my priests, they're the keepers of the law, they're going to make sure you get it right. And they're going to check your homework. And if you get it wrong, you're going to do it again. So God's kind of saying, this is a limitation of your power, right? He must keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. 
every day the king is supposed to know that God is superior to him and his law and his commands are superior to his whims or, or, or what he wants. Right? So here we have the, the best limitations of power. Uh, Marvin A. Sweeney, when he talks about this, is this. The kings of Israel and Judah were believed to serve as Yahweh's agents to rule the nation. They were expected to observe his covenants and laws, to defend the nation and engage in offensive war when deemed necessary, and to rule the people with justice, uh, the, the uh, Hebrew word for his mishpat, and righteousness, uh, Hebrew word tzeskadah. Although they were granted wild, wide powers to carry out these tasks, the ancients believed that the kings would suffer divine punishment if they violated the covenant and the law. Now, remember I said to you before that God says to the people in 1 Samuel, they've rejected me as king. You know what's interesting is one of the metaphors or one of the images that God uses to convey himself to the people is king. Psalm 29 verse 10. The, the Lord rules over the flood waters. The Lord reigns as king forever. Psalm 47, for, the God, for God is the king over all the earth. Isaiah chapter 6, remember this one because we're going to come back to it in, in the future. But when Isaiah, remember that beautiful vision where Isaiah sees God? What word does he use to describe this vision? And even the vision itself is, is God sitting upon what? A throne. And what does he say? Yet I have seen the king. Right? It's, again, it's this beautiful image of how he understood this idea of what God was. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Behold, your king is coming to you. And again, spoiler alert, we know what's going to happen with Jesus, right? And again, look at Zechariah. The Lord will be king over, uh, over the whole earth. And again, by the way, there's like tons of scripture referencing God as king. I just wanted to show you uh, some of them. Now, what's important is Israel was supposed to see God as king. Now, why this is important is a kingdom reflects the character of its king. A kingdom reflects the character of its king, right? So let's go back to Lion King, right? So Mufasa, right? He was a righteous king, right? And because he was a righteous king, the land thrived and everything was in balance. And again, dare I say the word we would use is harmony, right? Where does that harmony come from? The Garden of Eden, right? That, that the, the first harmony that was created for humanity. But when the unrighteous king comes along, there is a disharmony. And in disharmony, the justice is perverted and, and, and nature and humanity and God all are in chaos, right? So a kingdom reflects the character of a king. So just as an example, if you look at the book of Kings, whenever you see the kings in, in First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, there's a little line that the writer always puts in there. Let me show you. So let me take, for example, a king named Ahaz. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. The next line tells us what kind of king he is. He did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord, uh, Lord his God. So in other words, Ahaz decides that he's not going to listen to God and said he's going to be his own king. So what is the repercussions of that? Well, he sacrifices his own son in the fire, which, by the way, was an ancient pagan practice. Right? But then again, verse 4, he offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the pagan shrines on the hills and under every green tree. So what happens is, is that he decides that he's not going to follow Yahweh, which means he gets to be a king as much as he wants and do whatever he wants. And what happens then is the entire nation of Israel descends into pagan uh, worship as well too. Why? Because the kingdom reflects the king. This is really key to understanding what's about to happen in regards to the future. 
But I think there's something here as well, too, right? Um, there's a great article called The Cult of Celebrity Pastor and how it was destroying the church. Apart from going through the article here, he, he points something out which is kind of important. He says this, this has been the unfortunate and unintended consequences when the gospel spreads. Imperfect people bastardized, it's in the article so I can say it, um, it, for their own selfish purposes and try to recreate God in their own image. For example, when Christianity came to the Greeks, the Greeks turned it into a philosophy. When the Romans became Christians, the Romans turned it into a political system. When the gospel came to the Europeans, the Europeans made it into culture. Now that the gospel came to America, the Americans turned it into a business. A kingdom reflects the king, right? Each culture reflects what they think the kingdom should be. This is really important because how God wants to communicate to himself was, and again, spoiler, the kingdom of heaven, right? Again, I've said this to you before, half of the teachings that Jesus really explicitly talks about is all about the kingdom of heaven. Right? And so this is so important for us to understand this. So I think there's three lessons, and you know, I know we're pastors, we have to do three. I didn't mean to. I actually tried to squeeze out a fourth, but it worked out for three. I think there's three lessons we need to understand, which are going to help us for next week. Right? The first one is human power will always be compared to divine power. So what you have to understand about authority is all human authority, properly understood, will be seen in light of divine authority. Our power is borrowed, not owned. So the ancient kings explicitly were told, you represent Yahweh. And when you represent Yahweh, whatever decisions you make, however you choose to live, it is a reflection of God. This is why when, when the kings decided to live for themselves, God was so angry. Because the power that was granted of them was divine. Therefore, the divine judgment would come. And now look at this here. Over the last couple of years, spoiler alert, we've been in a difficult time. And Christians have had a different conversations about what's the right response to the pandemic. And at UCC, we've talked a little bit about, well, we've talked a lot about this. And I would say to you, Christians have had a really, I, I think we've had a difficult conversation about this because I think we've missed the point. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says this. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Now, the reason I put Nero in brackets is that you need to understand something. When Paul is writing to the church in Rome, they are just starting to experience what's called the Neronian persecution. And as, as I said to you before, the Neronian persecution is going to last many years, and it's going to wipe out the majority of the early church leaders, Peter and Paul, are both going to be killed in the Neronian persecution. Now, why this is important, and this is what Christians have missed when they've had this conversation about government authority, is Paul wasn't writing of government authority as being righteous. As a matter of fact, Nero is going to be considered one of the most evil Caesars in regards to, to, to Christianity in the early church. Fun fact, when you look at the word, the name Nero, Nero is almost a perfect translation of the, of, of the number 666. And so many authors and early church writers really attributed to Nero the Antichrist or the spirit of Antichrist. They actually attributed to Nero because of how much he manifested the evilness towards the, the, the church. So why this is so important to us is one of the conversations Christians have been having 
And I would say we are asserting our Western privilege is we are saying to ourselves, well, the government can't tell us what to do because the government's on authority was. And again, there's lots of conversations in Romans 13, but the point that I think people are mis misunderstanding about Romans 13 is it wasn't written to a righteous government because God knows something that we have forgotten. Human authority will never perfectly represent God. I've said this before, and I'll just remind you, there is no political party that represents God. I don't care what your political spectrum is. This is why at UCC, we are not a political church. Because guess what? I can't think of a single political party, not in Canada, not in America, not around the world, that speaks for God. I don't care what they say to you. I don't care how many times they drop God's name. In whatever speech, whatever policy that they're trying to give to you, God's like, I don't want anything to do with that. Why? Because human authority never represents God. And why we need to understand this is because what Christians have done, whenever we cozy up to power, it never works out well. I just want you to understand something. We work better at the fringes of culture than we do the center of culture. That's, just, that just, that's a lesson the early church understands. That's a lesson that the church, the underground church in China understands. That's a lesson that the underground church in the Middle East understands. Wherever there's vicious persecution of the church today, they get it. They get that we will operate better in the fringes of culture. This is why Christians embracing power never works out well. Whether religious or political or social, we're not supposed to be influencers. We're not supposed to be people that people follow because God has told us something very clear and we have forgotten this, that it's going to come a time, whatever we say and however we live, it's going to be the exact opposite of culture. Now, we've been able to pretend that culture and us were aligned I would say perhaps 1940s, 1950s, but that was just surface. And the true face of the ugliness of culture is now coming to fruition. Postmodernism in all its ugliness is now coming to fruition, and we're seeing these values exhibited. And as Christians, we're like, ah, what do we do? And God's like, I told you this was going to happen. Perhaps rather than looking at Twitter or TikTok or whatever it might be, you should probably crack open the Bible a couple of times. You know, forget the Instagram posts of, you know, hashtag blessed, whatever. I don't know, whatever that is. Maybe you should crack open the Bible because I told you this was coming. Right? Okay, no, no I'm not going to say that because we'll get to that. So this should give us pause in all conversations of power and power imbalance. Our culture today wants to talk about justice and power imbalances. But the problem is they don't truly understand power imbalances because they don't understand the true seat of all power. The true seat of all power properly understood is divine. Every political leader, every corporate leader, every social media leader, I don't mean to chuckle, but you know that, this is where we're at right now, all power is borrowed. Which, as for me as a pastor, and again, we talked about our values last week at UCC, one of the reasons why we designed UCC the way we did is because we don't want to be a church that is about embracing culture, which means we're just going to be a small church. And we're, again, I am absolutely okay with that. Uh, well, hopefully it doesn't get to zero, but, you know, we need a few people, I guess. But, you know, we want to be a church that hopefully embodies as much as possible, and we don't get it right, but the New Testament church. And the New Testament church understands something very specific, that they were at the outside of culture, the Romans were never going to like them, but by their own character and their own behavior, they were actually gonna, going to actually affect change to the most hostile of cultures. Remember last week, the, the three assumptions of the, of the early church, right? The outcome was uncertain, and the culture was hostile. 
Well, I think that's something we need. That's tattoo worthy, okay? I, I, I don't know whatever out there, but that, that's tattoo worthy. So the first thing we need to understand about power is, is that human power will always be compared to divine power because divine power is the seat of power. So every political party, every, every president, prime minister, vice, wherever you are, I don't care, if you wield any kind of power, the reference for your power is God, which, which should just freak us right out. Right? The second thing is, is God's kingdom is meant to be a refuge amongst the kingdoms of this world. Remember when God gave Israel a king? That king would be different than all other kings. And so in the early church, they understood this as well too. Right? Like Acts chapter 15 is a beautiful example of how the early church understood power. So there's a problem. The problem is Gentiles want to be Christians too. And they don't understand the Jewish law. So rather than Peter getting up, hey, I'm Peter. I'm the rock of the church. I'm going to make the decision. By the way, Peter was wrong, right? So they go back to Jerusalem. All the Christian leaders come together. And by the way, who makes the decision for the church? Jesus' younger brother, James. James stands up and gives the early church the halakha, the middle path. He says, just so you know, here's, what we ha- here's, how, here's how the Gentiles should be Christians. Wasn't Paul? Remember, Paul at this point in time wasn't Paul the apostle. He was Paul the banished one. The only reason Paul was back in ministry is because of Barnabas. So Peter was wrong. Paul was silent. So who stands up? James. Because what do do they understand? Conversation. Let's talk about this. What what do we discern? What's the Holy Spirit telling us on how we have the Gentiles? So the kingdom of heaven, the church, this refuge is meant to look different. 2 Corinthians 5.20. So we are Christ's ambassadors. By the way, this is a beautiful uh, image of this idea of embassy. I know there's some churches that have weird names like the embassy of God. I get it, right? It's weird, but I get it, right? Because what's an embassy? An embassy is a is a entity that exists in another country, but it ha- inhibits the values and the laws of the country it represents. So what does, P- what does Paul say? Paul says, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. We are our own individual embassies, supposedly inhibiting, not inhibiting, inhabiting, ooh, much better, uh, inhabiting the valleys of the kingdom of heaven. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I warn you as what? Temporary residents and foreigners. Temporary residents and foreigners. Just so you know, you didn't realize this, but you're all kind of a spiritual refugee. Right? We, we talk about refugees, and right now what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, they're talking about millions of people displaced. And of course, we say to ourselves, this is a humanitarian crisis, and that is true. But what we don't realize is a refugee feels vulnerable. Like, over the last few years, my wife has been involved with some organizations and individuals who have been dealing with refugees and, and, and refugees. And the beauty of this, I, this concept is it's not far away. It's right in Kitchener-Waterloo. And so what's interesting is we've interacted with these individuals. What we realize is a refugee feels like we can't even imagine what it's like to flee your home with almost nothing, come to a foreign place who doesn't understand your language, doesn't understand your culture, your values, any of these things, and try to communicate and live in, in that country. How displaced, how vulnerable would you feel? Well, I want you to take that image, that idea, in the physical sense of refugee, and I want you to think about that spiritually. And this is the disconnect that we have in culture today. We as Christians are saying one thing, and the culture like, I don't even know what you're saying. I don't understand your language. And you're like, well, maybe if we t- tone it down, or maybe we change it so that it's acceptable to you. And God's like, mm, 
you are my ambassadors. You speak on my behalf. If you speak on my behalf, you speak what I think is true, not what you think is true. And again, look at Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 20. But we are citizens of heaven. So the kingdom is meant to be different. Now, here's the last part. And this is really important, and this is going to really be a key. I keep saying this for next week, but you'll get it, right? We choose which king and kingdoms to live in to obey. This is really important, right? When you understand of a king and you understand a kingdom, what you have to understand is those who lived in this realm had the choice. For example, if you didn't want to live under the Israel king, we actually had, did you know this? We had ancient documents of people who would flee Israel when an unrighteous king would come. Why? Because they knew that this king would either kill them, right? The Levites, the priests would hide in caves. Why? Because the king would look for them and try to kill them. Because they are reminders of Yahweh's law, of Yahweh's rule. And that's not acceptable to a king who thinks them, they are God. Right? So we choose which king and kingdoms to live in. Luke chapter 11, verse 18. You say I'm empowered by Satan, but if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can what? His kingdom survive. See, what Jesus is saying here when he's talking about this idea of Satan and his kingdom is he's saying something very specific. Just as God has his kingdom, the enemy has his kingdom. And as Christ followers, we have this kind of uneasy thing that we live in two worlds, but God's like, you got to stop living in two worlds. you got to kind of make a choice, right? Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 16. For he has rescued us, where? From the kingdom of darkness and transformed us, where? Into the kingdom of his dear son. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. The early church and, and a lot of the letters that Paul is going to write, the image of king and kingdom keep coming into it. And remember, king and kingdom doesn't even make sense in the early church. Why? Because it's Caesar. Caesars were a type of king for sure, but there was a senate. There was a different political power. But yet he keeps talking about kingdoms because the ancient world understood this. But let's go a little bit further here. A guy named Dr. Bruce Raleigh uh, Ashford has a great book, by the way. Uh, if you're ever looking for a great book on Christianity and culture, um, Every Square Inch is a, is a book I, I, I recommend you should read. But look what he says is this. When Christians adopt a Christianity of culture, my, my word, kingdom, mindset, they take away the Christianity's ability to be a prophetic voice. I'll come back to that in a second. And usually end up sacrificing doctrines and moral beliefs that run contrary to cultural consensus. Now, Every Square Inch came out a number of years ago. But what Dr. Uh, Bruce Raleigh Ashford is saying, Dr. Ashford is saying, I think is prophetically true. Now, what's a prophetic voice? So remember I said to you that the, how do we limit power? Well, in the Bible, there's this person called a prophet. And the amazing thing about the prophets were is they didn't give a crap, right? They would walk up to the king and say to the king, and they did this to David as well too, you are living a lie. You're going against what Yahweh wants for you, and here's the punishment he's going to give to you. Prophets were the counterbalance to the kings, right? Priests could be bribed. Priests could be uh, changed. And we see this time and time again where the high priest would do whatever the king wants. But lo and behold, what does God do? He raises up a prophet. And we know who the prophets are because the Bible tells us. Jeremiah, Isaiah, um, Hosea, again, time and time again, major and minor prophets, right? Daniel, right? These are individuals God raises up. They have, no, they have no political party. They have no allegiance to anybody. And they show up and go, by the way, what you're doing is wrong. 
this is the voice of the church today. And what Dr. Ashford is saying is really important. When we embrace culture, when we are at the center of culture, we cannot speak to culture anymore. Why? Because we are part of culture. Going forward as Christ followers, we have to understand it's going to become increasingly difficult to speak authentic Christianity because the world is almost not going to understand our language. And, and the best image I can give to you about this is missions and a missionary. So I've had the opportunity to go to other cultures and try to talk about the gospel. I remember when I went to Ecuador, they call me Pastor Raha because they don't say J. And it took me a few moments to kind of figure out that, that they're talking to me. I remember one time when someone said, Pastor Raha. And I'm like, I don't know who that is. I hope that pastor shows up soon. And then it was me, right? I was like, oh, okay, I get it, right, Raha. So I remember going there and, 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 and really, before I said anything, because I, I had to preach in the church service, that's, that's the thing to do. I just wanted to understand this. I remember having lots of conversations with a translator, of course. There's one time, I don't know if you probably time. Okay, yeah. So one time, we went to this woman's house. And um, one of the things they tell you is when you go out, make sure you use the washroom before you go out because a lot of places you're going to go, they don't have washrooms. Well, I mixed up the word uh, banyo and pollo. By the way, banyo is washroom, pollo is chicken. And so I went to this woman's house and I, I, had, I, had, I had to tinkle. And, um, and I, said, uh, I, I said something like, uh, where's, the, uh, where's the pollo? And uh, I thought I was saying washroom. And she's like, see, see, pollo. And she points to the corner of her yard, and, and I didn't realize she was pointing to the chicken. I just thought she was pointing out in the open. And I'm like, well, I, I, can't, I can't do that. And I'm like, no, 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 where's the pollo? She's like, see, see, pollo. And she points to the chicken. And, and she is so gracious. She's got nothing, but she thinks I'm asking for her chicken. She's like, yes, pastor, please take the chicken. How gracious is this, is this person, right? But I don't know what I'm saying, so finally I'm getting kind of frustrated. So I call the translator over, and I, she's like, what, what's going on? I'm like, hey, so I'm trying to ask for the washroom. Uh, I don't know where it is, and she's pointing into the corner. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Because I'll hold it, right? I'm okay, right? And she's like, so what did you say to her? And, and, and I told her, and she starts laughing. That's never a good sign, right? This is before Google Translate and all that, right? She's like, you're asking for her chicken, and she's telling you you can take her chicken. My heart just like, oh my goodness, this poor woman who lives in this tin roof house, doesn't have anything, and this chicken is her only means, and she's, she's and I'm asking for it, and she's saying, yes, take my chicken. I'm like, no, no, I don't, I don't want your chicken, dear lady, you're so sweet. What I really need is a washroom, and we, we figured all that out. But the point simply is, you know, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's this cultural way of understanding it. Well, I just want you to know as Christians, whenever we talk about the gospel now, we have to think of ourselves as missionary because the stuff we're saying does not compute to people. So we have to almost understand them before we actually talk about Christ now. There's almost a step before the step because we think we can talk about Easter and Christmas and people get what we're saying. No, they don't. We talk about Easter and they're talking about bunnies. We talk about Christmas and they think we're talking about Santa. So we as Christians have to kind of almost dare I say, be smarter about how we start talking about the ethics of the kingdom and, and, and Christ because a culture no longer gets it. Right? Postmodernism has completely ripped up the roots of any understanding of religion and Christianity, and we have to now re-examine um, uh, how we talk about it. So what Dr. Ashford is saying is absolutely true, but it's also what we have to understand about the kingdom. This is the tension phase we are trying to live into kingdom. John Stott has a great way of saying he says this. The authority by which the Christian leader leads is not by power but love. Not force but example. Not coercion but reasoned persuasion. 
Leaders have power, but power is safe only in the hands who humble themselves to serve. Every Christian leader, every pastor, they just need to have this somewhere in, the, in their office. I don't have an office, so I'll put it on my milk truck, right? But this is something we need to understand. Power is borrowed. It's not owned. We are not powerful. We represent the only true power, which is God. It's divine. So however we lead, the, the idea of empathy and love must always be at the front and center, not power. C.S. Lewis is this way. Authority exercised with humility and obedience accepted with delight are the very lines in which our spirits live. I love that, right? I love how the fact that both C.S. Lewis and John Stott both highlight this idea of humility. One of the things I think is so lacking today, whether it's Christian leaders, social media, however you look at it, is just plain humility. Christ followers just seem to forget that the Savior they serve was the most humble person. And the thing that God loved most about Moses was that he was humble. That all the trappings of this world, of a culture, however followers you have, whatever house you live in, how, many, you know, how much you get paid, all these stupid things that the culture thinks is important, what God thinks is more important is humility. And authority and power in the kingdom of heaven is not owned. And properly understood, it's only given to those who humble. So who deserves power? Right? This is a question that's going to haunt us because this is a question we have to ask. Well, the prophet Micah, not Micah Kim, but I'm sure Micah Kim would say this as well too, but the prophet Micah has an interesting way of looking at this. So Micah chapter 7, I'm going to close with this, says this. Uh, Micah chapter 7, did I, okay, good. Verse seven, 16 says this. Now look what he says here. All the nations of the world will stand amazed at what the Lord will do for you. They will be embarrassed at, what? Their feeble power. They will cover their mouths in silent awe, deaf to everything around them. Like snakes crawling from their holes, they will come out to meet our, the Lord our God. They will fear him greatly, trembling in terror at his presence. Do you see the image of the prophet is putting? That all the leaders of the world, all the corporate leaders, all the social media influencers, everybody will come out and when they stand before God, they will what? They will realize their power is nothing. That their kingdoms are a drop in the bucket. That the power they think they wield is nothing compared to the king of kings. Right? Now, but look, it doesn't end there, right? Because this idea of power is like, yeah, we can get that. But look what he goes on to say next. Look at uh, verses 18 to 20. Because this is what he really wants to talk about, the true power. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors Abraham and Jacob long ago. What does Micah do? He takes this idea of awe-inspiring power. And what's happening is fear and trembling. Why? Because the proud are always humble. Why? Before the true God. Earthly power is always pale and shallow compared to the divine power. So Micah starts off with this image, this beautiful image. And again, like I love the idea that Micah kind of infers that the snake in the garden thought they had power. So leaders today think they have power. Every political leader thinks they have power. And God just chuckles. You don't have power. You have delusions. You don't own people. You don't change people. You create laws. Whether they are aligned with the Bible or not, that's irrelevant. You don't have power. 
It's so funny how Christians look to the political system and, and leaders of the world like, oh, if we could just get them on our side. If we could just get this political party to speak for us. And God's like, you don't get it. And again, it's not saying that we don't get involved in the political process. It's not saying that we don't get involved at some level. But I don't know how far we get involved without losing our own souls. Uh, it's a different conversation. But then Micah doesn't leave it there. Because that's how God sees power. He then creates this vision. And look at this. This person deserves power. Whoever this is, God, his power isn't to crush and destroy. His power isn't to humiliate. His power is love and forgiveness and compassion and empathy. This is what true power in the kingdom of heaven looks like. To God our king, this is his true power. Because God can do whatever he wants. And we are all unrighteous before him. You know, it, it's what, the, what Paul says to the church in Rome. We are, until we choose to live in God's kingdom, we are enemies of God. But then prophet Micah says this. The true power that we need to fall before, the true power that we need to stand before, is a, is a, is a compassionate God, is a humble God. Whoever deserves a royal power, these are the characteristics they have. Not to crush, not to make people submit, not to make people bow down before them. But true power in the kingdom of heaven, and we'll see you next week, is power of service, of humility, of empathy. Do you see why this type of power isn't with the powerful people in the world today? Because no one's like this. No one's like this. I don't care what leader you like. I don't care what person. There's nobody like this. Everybody wields power for their own gain. Everyone wields power for their own benefit. It's very few people who walk away from it. Very few people go, you know what? I don't want anything to do with this because I know what it does. I know how it will change and transform me. God is king, and he has a kingdom, and that kingdom has rules. That kingdom has, has values. And if we are true to followers of Yahweh, if we're true followers of God the king, then we, inha we inhabit, we dwell on those. And we go out into the world with the power of love, of compassion and mercy. So that we, by our behavior, we, by our beliefs, can transform a world that desperately needs to hear this. Let's pray. So we do this every week. If your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, just I do this so that you can have an opportunity to reflect. The worship team is going to come and they're going to lead us through another song. But before we get to that point, the question I really want you to think about is, you know, this idea of power. When we say who deserves power, the only answer we can give is God. All power is borrowed. All authority is powered. And when we understand this and we understand God, we have to remember, we get to choose the kingdom we live in. And the Bible tells us there are two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of love. And we, every day, when we wake up in the morning, we get to decide whose kingdom to live in. And so as we enter into the Easter story, as we unpack this idea of the kingdom, we just need to, perhaps even right now, just reset, re re remind ourselves about the kingdom of heaven and the values and the truth that the kingdom is based upon.
And if our king has these values, then his kingdom has these values. Compassion, humility, mercy, love. These are the rules of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of darkness, completely different. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are our king. And you are a king that comes to reign. You are a king that walks before us. And you are the king that deserves our allegiance. You are the king that deserves our, our commitment to follow and, and, and live out the values that you showed us. Lord, I pray, God, this morning that as we think of the world as two kingdoms, that we would remind ourselves, we would remember, and perhaps we would reset ourselves because sometimes we can pursue the values of the kingdom of darkness without even realizing it. Oh, dear goodness, Lord, I pray that we would, we would remember, we would be reminded that our king is the true king, but our king is not like other kings. Our king is such a beautiful picture of what it means to be an authentic follower of Christ. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, remind us. And, and God, if necessary, convict us if we have begun to pursue the values of the kingdom of darkness without realizing it, Lord. Let all of us realize that power is borrowed. And if that is the case, every decision that we make, every Every word that we say, whether digital or in person, represents that king. So let us be careful with how we understand that. Let us be careful with how we live that out. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we just have a couple of announcements. We do the announcements at the end, just A, so you'll remember them, and B, because... It just seems better that way. Uh, just a quick note, we have a softball team. We're not very good, but we are fun and we are feisty. And if you would like to be a part of that, please talk to myself or uh, Ben. Ben's out there, so uh, just look for Ben. Uh, Ben's our captain. Uh, not our king, but our captain. So uh, just talk to Ben. It's, again, it's more about fun. I only do it because of chicken wings afterwards because we go for chicken wings, and that's my love language. So if you're interested in being part of our baseball team, we'd love to have you be part of it as well too. So just talk to me or Ben and be uh, a part of that. Um, also, um, Young adults will meet tomorrow night. And guess what? I will show up tomorrow night, young adults. So I'll be there tomorrow night. There is a bit of miscommunication, and I apologize for that, although I didn't do anything wrong. Um, uh, but I will be there. <laughs> no, no, it's, it was, it, yeah, it was true. Um, I will be there tomorrow night, young adults. We're going to have a great conversation about end times. And all your dumb questions I will answer. Uh, they're not dumb. I'm just teasing. Uh, but we're going to talk about the end times because why not? That just seems like a fun thing to do. Also, I just want to let you know about our Easter. Um, so Good Friday, we've talked about this. If you're not part of our email chain and would like to be, just email me and I will add you to our, our UCC email I send out. But we have our Good Friday service. It's just over here on at this place called Le Chinsois. I have nothing to do with the name, but that's the place we're going to be at on 17 Herb Street. So we'd love for you to join us for our pancake breakfast. No cost, uh, but pancakes, sausage, fruit will all be available to you. It's kind of a... One of the things about Good Friday, one of the things I love about Passover, the Seder that Jewish people celebrate, it's family. Share a meal together because it's intimate, it's wonderful. We, we try to embody that. It's pancakes, it's not lamb, so, you know, vegetarians rejoice. But, uh, um, 
so we'd love for you to join us for that. But if you could let us know you're coming, because that way we make sure we have enough food. Um, on our website, if you look on our website, our newly designed website, yay, Mitchell, um, there's something called Pancake Breakfast, or Facebook, we have a, an event for that as well, too. Just let us know. And if your family's joining us, they are more than welcome guests, of course, because it's Easter. But just let us know they're coming as well, too, because we would love to have that. We're going to have our service at Le Chinchua. It's going to be kind of interesting because it's tables and all that, but we're going to go ahead with that. So our services actually can be there as well, and that's at 10 a.m. So our Good Friday service will be at Le Chinchua on, on Good Friday. We'd love for you all to join us. And we'll be back here on Easter Sunday at 10 a.m. for our Easter Sunday service. And again, if you would like to be part of the cooking team, now there is somebody here who said, hey, I'd like to be part of the cooking team. And as I already told with Katie, if I don't write these names down, I never remember who they are. So if you are that person, I don't remember who you are, so just remind me. Or if you'd like to be part of that team, please let me know. Uh, we'd love to have you for that. It's pretty easy cooking, but uh, we want to make sure of that. And of course, lastly, for those of you who continue to support UCC, thank you. Uh, we have been seeing an increase of requests for uh, benevolence. Uh, as you know, things have gotten a lot more expensive as far as food and gas and all that. And people will reach out to us, reach out to me through my email asking for help and we give gift cards because that's that's how we do it and so we only get to do that because people are continuing to support ucc so you could do it by text to give and if you've never set up text to give it takes two seconds or e-transfer because everyone lives on e-transfer either way thank you so much uh we talked a little bit last week at ucc how we look at resources how we look at the treasures and we want to be a church of low resource footprint but we also want to be a church that also ties back to the community that is giving a portion of what is given to us to help people in our community because we think that's of a high value and we only get to do that because of all of you so thanks so much for doing that you want to stand let's uh let's have our benediction and let's be released into the wild as it were dear lord jesus you are the king of kings and and i love that image and i love the fact that as we learn more what that means that we realize how powerful and prophetic that truly is lord as we have learned about god as our king as we learn about the kingdom of god i pray lord as we go out into the world that we would remember we are ambassadors we are the embassies of the kingdom and lord that we have to remember that as the world acts and thinks and and speaks in a certain way we as christ followers we servants of the true king we act differently and I pray, God, that we would be reminded about that as we go out into the world. And, Lord, as this Easter season approaches, that we would be reminded that, Lord Jesus, you as a true king, you saw power completely different in the world. And I pray that that would be our example in the world today. Lord, thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace, without which I could not, we could not survive. Lord, thank you for being the true king and living out the example of what true power looks like. Now may the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have any questions or you want to come talk to me, I'll say at the front. The rest of you, be released. Have a great day. Take care. Blessings.